want to thank you guys for coming to the One Association Conference. As we begin, I think it's appropriate to express my profound gratitude for the Remnant Church and for New Life Ministries. They co-sponsored the event. Could y'all give them a hand? Also, to my wife there on the front row, the pretty blonde sitting next to the other off-limits pretty little blonde. Anything you can do to help me with that reverb, I sure appreciate, brother. Uh, The truth is that my wife spent the last several weeks caring for her mother at home without medical assistance, and Miss Suzanne was ushered into eternal glory Tuesday afternoon. She now knows exactly who Melchizedek is. She knows whether Adam was or was not born with a belly button. My wife was holding her hand when she went into the presence of the king, and they were worshiping together. And yet within hours of the coroner leaving the home, Jennifer got in the truck and came to this conference. Look, my heart is filled with gratitude and admiration for those of you that cannot be deterred at any cost from advancing the kingdom. To be honest, that's exactly what DCD is all about. Look, these are unsettling times. They're unusual times. So I'm going to begin in an unusual place. About ten centuries before Christ, the Greek poet Homer was born in what is called today Smyrna, Turkey. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey around the same time period that Solomon lived and reigned in Israel. To give you more historical context, about 500 years before Homer lived, Moses was writing the Torah. That's the time period that the city of Troy and Athens and Thebes were founded. Homer wrote often about the city of Troy. Most of the Iliad, which is considered among the greatest of the Greek works, surrounds the Trojan Wars and the adventures of Odysseus and Achilles. In the opening of Homer's work, the Iliad, there's an unexplained plague because the gods are offended with the behavior of men in general, but also because of a growing rift between a king named Agamemnon and a warrior named Achilles. Ironically, a Greek prophet named Calchas He knows exactly why the plague is occurring, and he knows what the remedy must be. He, however, will not speak unless he is given personal assurances by the mighty Achilles, whom Homer often calls a God-man, that no personal harm will come to Calchas. It's ironic, isn't it? In the greatest of Greek literature... Their prophets will not speak the truth that they've been given unless they are assured that no personal harm will come to them. They are by nature danger-free prophets. Homer often speaks of the long-haired, smooth-faced, handsome Greeks. We are not Greeks. Our faith is not Greek. The ideals taught us in Scripture are not Greek. 
We are not and never will be danger-free prophets. Rather, our ethic comes from the Hebrew people who rarely had long hair, never had smooth faces, and more importantly, have the task of speaking the truth even though they face danger and often die. Hebrew men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, James the Just, or Stephen the Martyr, or the Apostle Paul, they never would have conformed to a danger-free expectation. Even Jewish women, the kind that we tend to admire, women like little Hebrew Hadassah, who most of you call Esther, they're loved precisely because they face danger in their time. Go gather all together the Jews who are in Susa, she said, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Put your superscript, Romans 13, for those of you that cannot figure out how to interpret that. And if I perish, I perish. The first part of our year brought us into remembrance of the profound importance of the great assembly. Even in the face of danger. This is a truth whose significance has suffered a great deal in our time. Let's get straight into the scripture. It always resolves our issues, doesn't it? We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 20 in verse 5. And tonight I'm not going to wait on you, but we'll put them all on the screen. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly. Oh my God. Stand up in the assembly. Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built a sanctuary for your name. Saying, if calamity, somebody say calamity. Calamity. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or the plague. Let that sit for a minute. Or famine. We will stand in your presence. We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name. And we will cry out to you in our distress. And you will hear us and save us. We stand here tonight as the assembly of the Lord. Even in the midst of calamity and plague. We affirm that our God is the God of heaven. And his rule is over all the kingdoms and nations. We are His servants, soldiers, sons, and friends because His love has compelled us to love and obey Him 
above every other power, title, authority, or danger that may oppose him or us. Like Jehoshaphat and Solomon before him, we believe that calamity, sword, plague, or famine all demand one response. I'll give you a hint. It's not that we all stand in a circle and uh, zoom each other, whatever that means. No, it is that we assemble and then we call out to our God in our distress. That is how we must respond. We will believe that He hears us, that He will save us, and that others will be drawn to His salvation through us. In verse 13, it says, All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. We do this as a community, as a family, as brothers, and yes, even with our little ones. We do this in the face of personal loss. We do this regardless of the cost of our obedience. In these unsettling times, the contrast could not be more evident. We are a remnant of men with new life. And that life is the only hope of the dark and chaotic world around us. C.T. Studd once said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. You are here tonight because this rings true in your soul. You have no desire to shrink from this honor even when confronting the dangers of our time. That's why so many of you, when your flights didn't work, got in cars and drove. You are here because you are DCD. You have given your life to Him. And now, the life you lead is in His hands. It is in His service. And it is used solely for His glory. Simply put, you have no life of your own. It's only His life now being displayed in your weakness as you confront the danger of our day. You know, Stud went on to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There could be no more sobering truth than this in the darkness of our present carnal circumstances. I, for one, have no plans to hang my head in eternity because I lived in fear and cowardice now in this present time. Now, I'm convinced that it's time to live loudly, to love largely, and to shout the gospel with my actions and my words. You know, I'm overwhelmed with joy to see so many of you brave souls feel the same way. DCDs come to mean many things to us through the years. It began as a phrase not supposed to be spoken in church, but heralded by true missionaries around the world in yesteryear. DCD originally meant don't care a damn for this world, meaning not being able to be seduced by the things of the world. Last year, we looked at DCD as disciples, creating disciples. It's more acceptable to say, but just as revolutionary to do. And in this year, in some ways, DCD is disciples confronting danger. This is progress. This is maturing. We can only hope DCD comes to mean disciples conquering death. 
But that's the subject of future exploits and not the subject that we're on this evening. Tonight, when you think of DCD, think disciples confronting danger. Because unlike Calchas, the calculating Greek prophet held up as a hero, we are often despised, often rejected by men because of our courage that exposes their cowardness. The sincerity of our faith exposes the insincerity of the beliefs that many say they hold. Psalm 22 tells us so clearly, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Not on the telecast. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. We're here tonight not to honor a one association, not to honor a particular church, to honor Him in the great assembly. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Listen, it's true. We often suffer as those out there suffer. We even die as they die. But our God does not hide his face from us. And he does listen to our cry for help. You know, while we suffer as they do, they do not experience life that is really life as we do. The abundant life is ours, and I plan to put it on full display all the rest of my days, especially when we're confronting danger. Psalm 149 says, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, even you Baptist folks. And make music to him with the tambourine and harp. I've got to confess, I don't much enjoy tambourines growing up in charismatic churches. But it's biblical. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor. It's an honor. It is indeed an honor for the saints to assemble. Tonight, we delight in this honor. If we are privileged to give our lives in this kind of cause, it doesn't become less honorable. It becomes more so. You need to wrap your mind around that. A right thing does not become or stop being right because it cost you something. The cost actually shows the sincerity of the cause, the rightness of the action. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Everyone. Look, could everyone say the word everyone? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. As we've come here tonight, you've already seen this truth on full display. Tongues and interpretations, prophecies, songs written by the people in the congregations. We are not spectators watching a religious show. 
We are the body of Christ participating in Christ as we fellowship one with another. Hebrews 10 tells us to spur one another on in this regard, not to give up meeting together. I will not. You will not. And all the world will be better for it. Romans 4.18 has long been one of my favorite passages. I want you to catch the tenor of the faith of Abraham. Against all hope. Not against a 2.7% chance. Not if you have two or three comorbidities. Against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Since there is trouble all around us, we do not deny that fact. We face it. We confront it. We give glory to God without wavering in unbelief. We know that our God has the power to perform what He has promised. And that kind of trust has become our righteousness. While we're speaking of facing the facts, I think we're headed for a contested election. It's sure to bring chaos no matter who wins. Many of our cities are burning. And it's likely that that will continue. We're seeing the loss of personal freedoms on a scale that previous generations would not have thought possible. There are unprecedented intrusions into religious freedoms occurring daily in this country. And that trend is growing around the world. I'm sure you've all seen this graphic in some form or another with a frequency that has only induced nausea for you. With a 2.7% chance of death and that requiring both that you contract the disease and that you have two or three comorbidities. The compromised churches collapsed in cowardice this year. Enclosures around the globe occurred on every continent. Polished, pretty pulpits tried to make their decisions appear noble and altruistic. This caused many to be deceived into believing that the loving thing to do was to close the church of the living God, which is the only hope of a lost and dying world all around us. Some went so far as to attack those of us who were not disguising our cowardice with imaginary nobility. But these events have only deepened our convictions and added steel to our resolve. The truth is, we have been advantaged by adversity. We're learning that there is necessity in in confronting danger. Our awareness of the responsibility of the local church has only grown. Our character has been forged in the furnace of criticism. 
This criticism teaches the Christian just how hollow the praises of his fellow man really are. And this criticism ultimately brings you to a place where you are free from the fear of man. Our churches have grown because others are drawn to the genuineness of a message that we are willing to suffer for. To face danger for. Even to die for. You know, despite every threat... Every church in the one association is represented here tonight and in record numbers. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. 2020 has been a year that the church, it's been matured by their pastors in expedited fashion. Say thank you, pastors. This year, my international schedule was limited which allowed for more than 20,000 miles to be traveled between domestic churches in my truck alone. What I observed was remarkable. You are far stronger, far clearer, and far more effective than ever before. My family has been in every hot spot in the United States from Seattle to New York this year. And I'm proud to say to anyone who would ask, our churches have never been more essential Despite what the government of California says about them. I'm delighted to say that your dedication to discipleship and the global call are at an all-time high. And hell will not be able to stand against you in the decades to come. We will raise our disciples to confront danger and hell will never overcome them. That's what the One Association is actually about. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The danger of our times has revealed the thin facade, the delicate deception, the deceiving delusion that shrouds modern Christianity. Their lives are still their own. That's the problem. Lives given to the Lord in word only. But when it comes to danger, when it comes to death, when it comes to meaningful sacrifice, you find out their lives are their own. DCD is disciples confronting danger. We are unveiled. What we are can be seen by everyone. We are ordinary men and women that have been transformed by the spirit and power of God. This is and always has been what the church is. It is the very reason that the true church shines in the midst of danger. We are a remnant of men with new life. It's our job to hold out hope in these unsettling times. Not send people a Snapchat. The Apostle Paul reminded Timothy... Of the essential nature of the church. This is 1 Timothy 3.14. Although I hope to come to you soon. I am writing you these instructions. So that if I am delayed. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves. In. Somebody say in. In God's household. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and foundation of truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. In these coming sessions, you're going to hear from eight churches of the One Association. Pastor Brent Vinson of One Light Ministries came all the way from Indonesia 
to remind you of things you already know but need to hear again. Pastor Justin Johnson of King's Harvest Church is here with us tonight. Pastor Sutherland and Pastor Piro of Life Changing Ministries are here with us tonight. Pastor Slaughter and Pastor Massey of the Arising Church are here. Pastor Treister came from New Life Ministries. Give him a hand. Pastor Buddy Brasso of Ehud to Peru came this evening. I can't tell you how many flights were canceled and had to be rebooked. I can't tell you how much money we lost. And I can't tell you how much I don't care. Faith that cost you nothing is worth nothing. Pastor Zeke Lamb of Submission Ministries is here. We're going to get to participate in an ordination when Pastor Lamb does his session. That's going to be a special event. And on Sunday, you will hear from our very own local pastor, Pastor Michael Hutchinson of the Remnant Church. Look, each of these pastors has been instructed to preach in relation to a text. One that I believe defines our times. These are amazing men of God in their own right. And since they'll be preaching on variations of this Holy Ghost directed theme, I don't think that I should go too deeply into it tonight. But I do want to tell you how I received it and introduce the idea. Is that okay? Good, because it's what I'm going to do anyway. I was returning from one of many trips to Submission Ministries this year, and I stopped in northern Alabama to pray. And the more I looked at my surroundings, the more I wanted to pray. <laughs> Pastor Justin Johnson called me on the phone, and as we began to discuss 1 Kings 19, as well as 2 Kings 5, both settings have to do with a Samaritan kind of setting. You know what I mean? It's... Something that's prevalent today. Priests that are not real priests. Holy gatherings that are not holy gatherings. Convenience elevated above consecration. Those who would be the cure, but instead became the disease. Samaritan religion. Some things began to be crystallized in our conversation. It Clarity hit us. You're going to hear in the coming sessions about Elijah and Elisha. It's instructive to us. It's needed in our times. See, callings are in every man from birth. That's evidenced by the fact that Elisha was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen, but he was called to plow the 12 tribes of Israel's hearts. In order to accomplish the actual call, he had to first burn his own plow. He had to burn his own way of doing things. He had to learn to accept instruction from a man that he called father. It turns out that discipleship is more than recognizing a calling. It's dying to the way that you believe it should be done. I think if you read John 12, 24, it says something about that. Look, there can be no hesitation in this regard. Every disciple has to leave a fishing boat, leave the tax collector's booth. He has to burn the plow. Another thing that you'll hear about in the coming sessions is the man Naaman. Naaman is called a great man, but he isn't. 
He has leprosy. Even his servant girl has more insight into God's ways than he does. Naaman is great in the world's eyes, but he's not great in God's eyes. Like other powerful men in the Bible, for instance, Pharaoh that had dreams but couldn't interpret them. These powerful men, like Pharaoh, had to be humbled, and he learned to call Joseph his father, and that advice saved the nation. Nebuchadnezzar also had a dream that he couldn't interpret. He had to be humbled and learn to accept direction from Daniel. See, Naaman was a king in his own eyes, but he was inferior to the ones who were serving him. Naaman would have to go through a humbling process and learn to be instructed. Naaman brought money and gifts and talents and prestige that were worthless regarding what God wanted to do. They were even in the way of what God wanted to do. They represent him clinging to what he already knew had not worked, his own leprous arm. I hope you look forward to hearing more about that. It's only when Naaman dies to his vision, to his expectation, to his abilities, to his pride that he can accept the truth. Instruction is the only way to cure this problem. He must recognize his need and humbly accept the instruction of God through Elisha. Naaman did this. Somebody say, did this. And he represents God want, those God wants to save in our present time. You're also going to hear about the house of Ahab. These are the kings who tear their clothes because they no longer believe God moves. Ahab and his son Joram are cowards, cessationists, kings without confidence. They don't believe in the actual working of God because of the compromise in their own home. So you might begin to think of the house of Ahab as the nominal pastorate of our time. Next you'll hear about Gehazi. Gehazi is a pitiful disciple of Elisha. Gehazi represents the man who doesn't really do anything based on his own relationship with the Lord. He only seeks to profit from whatever God does through someone else. Gehazi. It's the prosperity pimp of our time. I can tell you what channel he would be on on TV if it had existed in his day. Oh, he benefited from good teaching, but he had twisted desires like Simon the sorcerer or the king of Sodom or the seven sons of Sceva. Gehazi had the opportunity to wear a great mantle, but he gave it up for shekels and shirts. Gehazi was called to be the cure. And Gehazi quite literally became the disease. The superstar of every session. I mean, the thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind as we go through the various facets and nuances of these things by these excellent pastors teaching. Elijah is the superstar of all of our discussions. And it's because he's a properly discipled man that has become dangerous to the enemy. Elisha has been discipled. He knows what to do. He doesn't beg. He doesn't appeal to men's desires or lose sleep over whether or not Naaman will listen. Elijah has been trained, and Elijah knows where all training must begin. Elijah wants nothing in this world but to help Naaman. He's not looking to receive anything. He only wants to give. He knows the value of what he has. 
so he doesn't resort to pleading. He knows that he has treasure. He got it from Elijah. It's Naaman who needs the revelation. Listen, as you listen to these extraordinary messages that are going to come from these anointed pastors, I want you to consider Ahab's house is a cessationist contaminant, posing with the pretense of power, but it cannot confront the dangerous crisis in the days ahead of us. Gehazi is a perversion of the process and power of God. And he not only can't address our times, he makes them worse. Naaman is the target. Naaman is the man that we will see drawn from the clutches of disease and brought into the divine name of our God. Naaman is the man who ends up valuing even the dirt under the feet of the teachers. Elisha is strong, secure, properly discipled man who is dangerous to the enemy because he knows how to confront the dangers of our time. We are the one association of churches. We are a remnant of men who have new life. We want nothing more than to give that life to others. We don't beg. We don't compromise. Instead, we burn our plows, abandon our rivers, and leave behind our resources. We know what others must do. Because we've done them ourselves and recognize the value of the great gift. They will see it in the sincerity of what we sacrifice of ourselves for the kingdom of God. They will see that we are disciples confronting danger without regard to our personal safety. Unlike Calchas, that long-haired, smooth-faced, handsome Greek, we do not ask for or receive assurance of personal safety before we proclaim the truth by actions and words. You know, this brings me to what I really wanted to talk to you about. Is that all right, Miss Hannah? Can I do that? If Hannah says I can do it, then I can do it. Isaiah 49, 24 is an ancient question. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children will I say. How will we do this? How will we see new Elishas raised up? How will we see Naaman cured and brought into the faith? How will these things happen? The answer is now the same as the answer has always been. Please turn with me in Acts to the very first chapter. For the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the early church. Look at the historical record of those that have gone before us. In Acts, the first chapter, beginning in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. But you will receive power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How will we do these things? How will we see Naaman cured? How will we confront the danger of our day? We will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit and without regard for our own lives. That's how. Now this is a verse you've heard many times because you come from spirit-filled traditions. Or if that's not what you came from, it's certainly what you're standing in now. To properly understand this, we need to acquaint ourselves with two very important words. The first is dunamis, and the second will be martus. But I would like to start with the definition of dunamis. Man, that's kind of small for you guys to read, isn't it? Good, I'm going to read it for you. Dunamis, to be able, power, especially achieving power. All words that are derived from the stem of Duna have the meaning of being able or capable. The first meaning, spoken of as intrinsic power, either physical or moral. In other words, when Jesus said power, he meant power. When it's spoken of your physical body, it either stands in Holy Spirit power or it is already in weakness. That's the middle definition. But my favorite, can I... Can you indulge me and let me read you my favorite? This comes from the Complete Word Study Dictionary. What does dunamis mean? A spirit of strength, meaning manly vigor in opposition to the spirit of cowardice. Manly vigor in opposition to a spirit of cowardice. The second important word. Martus. Martus is used of those who witness for Christ by their death. But when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power, manly vigor in the face of the spirit of cowardice. You will be my witnesses. You will die for me. If there's a theologian out there, well... Pastor, actually, it can also be used another way. I'm so glad that you were thinking that. It's also used of those whose lives and actions testified to the worth and the effect of their faith. Power is not just to speak in tongues. It's not just to prophesy. It's to stand up and speak up when others sit down and shut up. The Holy Spirit will move on you to find manly vigor. To love not your life unto death. To witness of the worth and the value of our faith because of what you're willing to risk for it. Let's be very honest. We need to have an honest moment with each other. Considering these definitions, there is a serious lack of the kind of first century Christianity in our times. I plan to reclaim that spirit of strength, that manly vigor in opposition to a spirit of cowardice. And we're going to do it as men whose lives and actions testify to the worth and effect of our faith. Even if, no, especially if, it means confronting danger or death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, in his famous work, The Cost of Discipleship. How many of you know about that book? 
Yeah, it's on a lot of pastor shelves. It's just not found in their lives at all. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This kind of genuine faith doesn't need donuts to be appealing to those who want to be saved. It calls them out. This is how the authentic Spirit of God draws them. Others will see this in you as you are a disciple confronting danger. See, if there's no danger, there's no opportunity to show manly vigor. If there's no danger, there's no opportunity to be a real witness. So I praise God that He's dimming the lights for us that you might shine brightly. It's been said that if I tell you the facts, you will learn them. If I tell you the truth, you will believe it. And if I tell you a story, you will remember it and it will live in your hearts forever. So I'm going to tell you a factual, truthful story. In the hopes that you learn it, believe it, and most of all, remember it. So that it lives in your hearts in the days to come. Will you all let me do that? I want to talk to you about Adrian Carton de Wart. Adrian Carton de Wart was a British army officer born of Belgian and Irish parents. He was born in 1880 like so many. His story starts in difficulty. His mother died in his early adolescence. So did his three sibling sisters. They all died very young. Adrian was rumored to be the illegitimate son of King Leopold of Belgium. At least if people are going to accuse you of being a bastard, it's the bastard son of a king. He learned to speak Dutch, Arabic, and English. He was trained in business and law. But if we're honest, he hated both. Although Adrian disliked school... Historians have noted that a schoolmaster whose name was John Henry Newman is famous for the following quote. It undoubtedly had a huge impact on Adrian's life. Fear not that thy life shall come to an end, but rather that it shall never have a beginning. In 1899, the Second Boer War which was a conflict between Britain and elements within South Africa, was ongoing. Adrian was barely 19 years old. Raise your hand if you're 19 or down in this room. Wow. The enlistment age was 20. Adrian lied about his age. He lied about his parental permission. He lied about his citizenship. He lied about his own name in order to enlist. He became a member of the cavalry. During his first engagement with the enemy, Adrian was shot in the stomach and the groin. That could have been the end of Adrian's story. But it's not. He recovered and had various assignments in military conflicts ranging from England all the way to India. Around the beginning of World War I, England was involved in a conflict with Muslims. Go figure. In British Somalia, Adrian volunteered. He asked to be sent. 
He was assigned to a camel riding brigade, which I find humorous. They were on a mission to hunt down Muhammad bin Abdullah. But the British simply referred to him back then as the Mad Mullah. Because that's before CNN governed all of your speech. During this engagement, Adrian, he was shot three times with two of the bullets hitting his face, resulting in the loss of most of his left ear and all of his left eye. That could have been the end of Adrian's story. But it's not. He recovered from his injuries. And in February of 1915, Adrian was sent to the Western Front of the war. The military brass insisted that he wear a glass eye so that his injuries would not appear to be a detriment that discouraged others. And Adrian initially agreed. On his deployment, Adrian discarded his glass eye because after he thought about it, he reckoned that his scars were an honor to the crown rather than a supposed detriment to morale. As his squad engaged the Germans along the battle lines, Adrian was hit by German artillery. The blast blew off three fingers on his left hand and left two mutilated fingers hanging without function. Adrian asked the field medic to amputate the remaining two lifeless fingers. When the medic refused, Adrian took a deep breath and tore them off with his remaining right hand so that they would not impair his function. You can look at the picture. This could have been the end of Adrian's story. But it's not. Adrian's reputation was beginning to grow and his men noted in their journals that despite having only one hand, Adrian would hold a grenade in his right hand and use his teeth to pull the pin before he threw the grenade. His courage to confront danger was becoming an inspiration to soldiers who wanted to imitate his life. Over the next few military encounters, Adrian was promoted several times. He was given more men under his command because they all wanted to follow him. Eventually, he ended up in the European theater of World War I, and he was involved in several hard-fought victories. During the Battle of Somme, which is in France, at a place called the Devil's Wood, which is never a good thing, Adrian was shot four times by a German sniper. He was hit in his remaining ear, hit in his remaining right hip. He was hit in his right knee and he was hit in his right ankle. That could have been the end of Adrian's story. But it's not. Adrian recovered and he went on to fight in the Soviet Union, fight in the Ukraine, fight in Poland, fight in Lithuania, and fight in Slovakia. During these encounters, he survived two plane crashes in which other men died. 
He also fell from a moving train while he was on leave because the train was being robbed. And despite the use of only one arm, he climbed back onto the moving train, pulled his service revolver, and shot both of the men that were robbing the train. The only difference between Chuck Norris and this man is this man is real. This could have been the end, but it's not. Eventually, World War I and the Polish conflicts post-war came to an end, and that might have been the end of the story. But I guess you know it's not. World War II broke out. And Adrian returned to service despite the fact that he was now 61 years old and was missing his left hand as well as his left eye. Adrian was given a mission by Winston Churchill himself that involved a trip to Yugoslavia with a stopover in Cairo, Egypt. The Wellington bomber plane that was transporting Adrian crashed into the Mediterranean Sea. Adrian managed not only to swim to shore with his one good arm, but also saved the life of an injured soldier by dragging him to the shore with the same good arm. Unfortunately, the beach that they landed on was occupied by an Italian regiment loyal to Nazi soldiers. So both Adrian and the injured soldier were captured and placed in a brutal POW camp. While in the POW camp, Adrian organized himself and five other soldiers in an escape attempt. They tunneled out of the POW camp, together successfully escaping their interrogators. World War II eventually came to an end. And certainly that's the end of Adrian's story. But it isn't. Adrian was called up for a series of diplomatic missions to combat the rising communist threat in the region of China. Official historical records detail an encounter in which Adrian was a dip at a diplomatic dinner the Chinese tyrant Mao Zedong was there. He was giving a speech extolling the virtues of communism, like any of the Democratic National Convention. The official recordings of the events say that Adrian interrupted the communist leader during his speech and called him a fanatic to his face and declared that communism itself was evil. What an amazing end to a heroic life. But that's not the end. On the way home from this diplomatic mission, the plane carrying Adrian crashed in interior China. Adrian Carton de Wart survived the crash. Although Adrian had been shot ten times in his life 
and survived four plane crashes that killed others. Adrian died of boredom in his own home at the age of 83 in the United Kingdom. If you haven't guessed, well, Adrian is a real human being. That is not his picture. This is. An ordinary man who possessed extraordinary courage. Since we are not long-haired, smooth-faced, handsome Greeks, you may be familiar with a Hebrew concept called Calve Comer, the light and the heavy. If this man could confront danger for the United Kingdom, how much more should we who are endowed with the Holy Spirit of manly vigor confront and overcome the spirit of cowardice For the glory of the kingdom of God. If this man could testify through his life and actions. To the sincerity and effect of his cause for the United Kingdom. How much more should we testify through our lives and actions. To the sincerity and effect of our faith. For the kingdom of God. We do not need the assurance of Achilles. The God man as Homer called him. We don't need Him to provide us with security from all harm before we speak the truth and face danger. We've already pledged both our life and our deaths to the real God-man, Jesus the Christ. That's where real Christianity begins. That's not something you mature into over 30 years. That is The nucleus, seed, and beginning of Christianity. I want to use the balance of my time talking to you directly from the Scripture. I believe it will speak to you itself. Is that okay? I'm so glad that y'all want to. Because it's what we're doing anyway. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? You either believe in verbal plenary inspiration, you either believe that God breathed this onto a page or you don't. And if those syllables, if those words are written and God breathed them on the page, then you have to wrestle with them. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company. Corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Catch this endanger ourselves, he says. Endanger ourselves. And how often? Every hour. That is. 
either the word of God or it's not. He doubles down on it. I die every day. Every day. How many of you had people try to talk you out of coming? I don't consider it a missions trip if I don't get calls from people I love telling me not to go. Listen, there's never been a truer statement penned than bad company corrupts good character. We are the DCD. We're descended from Hebrew men of faith who were endowed with the Holy Spirit. That spirit of manly vigor that overcomes cowardice prevalent in our times. 2 Corinthians 4.11 For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Disciples confronting danger means that we give ourselves over to the risk that life might be offered to those who are dead spiritually. This seems so dangerous to our contemporaries. No more dangerous than we are to the enemy. And I've been criticized throughout my 27 years in the faith. He's dangerous, they say. In fact, some of you say. Terrified, harm's going to come to your husband on some daring leap of faith with crazy Pastor Eric. You're right. I am dangerous. Dangerous to the enemy and so is your husband. We need to wake up to that. We are men who face danger and we are men who are dangerous to the enemy. If you're looking for some other kind of Christianity, it doesn't exist, but there's a Samaritan version for you. Every sincerely discipled man is dangerous to the enemy. Acts 19.15 One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul I know about, but who are you? All the power of hell should know and fear you. Because you love not your life so much as to shrink from death, and that makes you dangerous. All the power of hell should know that you are dangerous because you take captives from the fears. You know, hell doesn't fear Ahab or Gehazi. But hell will resist the man who is delivering Naaman of his physical and spiritual disease. You better believe that we're dangerous. In Acts 19, verse 26, And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole provenance of Asia. He says, now get this, He says, That gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's not very loving. Look at the testimony about him. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the providence of Asia and all the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Do you know 
why the demonic spirits knew who Paul was? He was dangerous to the enemy. How many people zooming amongst themselves are turning cities upside down for the kingdom of God? I don't really know what a circle zoom is, but somebody's trying to teach me. Apparently, it's a a new way for people to meet. I'm not sure I want to meet people that way. We're the DCD, disciples that confront danger. And that makes us dangerous to the man-made gods that are no gods at all. The Samaritan religions... Or their Greek counterparts like Artemis in this passage, they will be discredited. This can only be done by dangerous men who are willing to be slaughtered like lambs, that they might rise like the Lion of Judah. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had to wrestle with more than a 2.7% chance of his mortality. Acts 19.37 you have brought these men here that they, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. You know, when they gather, it's a mostly peaceful protest. When we gather, the CDC, that is the carnally diseased Christians, they call us dangerous. We are dangerous. We're dangerous to false religion, and I'll never be any other way. As we come to the end of an hour, which is something of a miracle for me, I'd like to focus in on 2 Corinthians 11, because you all love the passage, but I think somehow or another we've been, I don't know, deluded from its actual meaning. Sometimes when you get familiar quoting a passage, you forget about what it is to live that passage. Sometimes you put the men who actually do it in some other classification of human beings so that you don't have to be what they are. But this is the DCD, and you're called to be exactly what they are. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I always love that he put that in the word. I am more. I have worked harder. Been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. And been exposed to death again and again. Doesn't sound like he was listening to little Mr. Worldly Wise Man. It's just not safe. Just not expedient. We just need to use wisdom. Said every pansy that ever lived. Five times I received the Jew- from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. In danger from bandits. In danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger at sea. And in danger from false believers. Adrian Carton de Wart had nothing on the Apostle Paul. They both sound like mythical figures to you because that's easier to cope with than to think that you would have to be filled with the same spirit of manly vigor and do the kind of deeds they did, testifying to the work, worth, and effect of your faith. It's easier to think of them as cartoon characters than real human beings, but they were. Paul lived in constant danger. But I ask you, was there ever a man that was more dangerous to the enemy? Do you see the relationship here? You can sit in your house and hide and say you're not scared. But if you weren't scared, you'd be turning the world upside down for Jesus, regardless of the cause. I love you because you're here. You're showing you're not scared. But I think we all have to come to grips with the fact that there's been more yuckiness in us this year than we wanted there to be. I love that our God has provided adversity so that we can see what must be circumcised away from us. We can make room for the filling of the Holy Spirit of manly vigor and it will overcome. He will overcome our cowardice. We need power. Dunamis. The spirit of manly vigor to overcome the cowardly spirit of our times that we might become witnesses. Martus. Men who showed the sincerity and effect of the genuine faith in the face of danger. We need that. DCD. Don't care a damn for this world. I hope that's still offensive to some of you. It's not as much fun for me to say if it's not. When you're criticized, when you're beat up, When those who should stand with you stand against you and you know that the only reason you're doing it is because of a profound love for Jesus, it does so much for you. It teaches you not to love the praise of men. It teaches you how ridiculous it was when they told you you were the best pastor ever. It brings a certain kind of freedom. It also takes away the devil's ability to seduce you with things. DCD, don't care a damn for this world. DCD, disciples creating disciples. Friends, we can't spend years talking about discipleship as an everyday event. It's between people in a very personal way and then say, you know what? Let's Zoom each other. No, if we're going to continue the DCD tradition, if it was God when it started, 
then we must be disciples confronting danger. There's no other way to get the work of God done. And if need be, we'll be DCD, disciples conquering death. 1 Timothy 3.14 is worth reading again. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. How the church stands under adversity is the hope of the world all around us. If you don't see anything wrong with the church closers, closures occurring, something's really wrong with your discernment. If you got confused for a little while, I get it. We all do. We need each other. I'm thankful for it. If you still don't see anything wrong with it, if you see it as a preference, you fundamentally misunderstand the times we're living in. And you need to wake up. Think about it. If the church crumbles, what hope do they have? The church must confront danger. In fact, it must become dangerous to the enemy. Galatians 6.17 is more than likely the last passage I'll read you tonight. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Apparently, people were causing him trouble, too. Apparently, people were saying things about him, too. And the very marks on his body testified to the sincerity of his faith. I've noticed that my strongest critics through the years have never done or even began to attempt the things that our younger disciples do all of the time. It's a good thing we're not in a room full of critics tonight. Our battle scars... Our afflictions, our adversities, they don't demoralize others. They're the marks of a Christian and they draw those being saved to Christ. When they can see what it cost you to take your stand, then your stand becomes worth something. Let the powder puff Christians do the pleasant way. Sweet little popsicles. Sit there and look pretty. Have I talked about the long-haired, smooth-faced Greeks enough yet? I thought that I would see a Greek friend here tonight, and I thought I'd poke fun at him, but it's all right. When we confront danger because of Christ, you become dangerous to the enemy. That's how that works. If you will not confront danger because of Christ, then you're not dangerous to the enemy. You're more like a little daffodil. Discipleship has to hold up this truth. It has to. When Pastor Justin Johnson takes his stand, he's not being stubborn. When Pastor Zeke Lamb takes his stand, he's not being obstinate. They're not just being nonconformist. They're standing in and by the Spirit of Christ. Our hope would be that others would do the same. And here recently, an 81-year-old cessationist finally woke up and realized he's going to lose everything i'm thankful for it i really am i wish you'd been around seven months ago but 
people will find your courage inspiring if you show it, if you live in it. Discipleship has to hold this truth up. It's the pillar and foundation in our perilous times. Ahab's house, it'll continue to tear its clothes because they have no actual faith in God's working today. I want you to get that. If you're waiting for Ahab's house to come around, it won't. They can only come out of his house. Hundreds of years have proven that. If you're sitting in a cessationist position and you're hoping that you will change them, leave. Leave. The best way you can do is show them how to walk out. If you don't like that, you need to get over it. I I say it with some authority because I spent many decades there. Somebody has to see the distinction between what you have and what they have to want what you have. Gehazi, Gehazi knows that God will move, but he hopes to personally profit from it, and he's content to ride on the accomplishments of others. Listen, when you think of Ahab and Gehazi, When you think of the spirit-filled idiots that are pimping out the gospel for profit and the cessationists that don't believe God will do anything, Ahab's house, where do these two compromised camps leave the Naamans of the world around us? Say, well, I love my neighbor and I want to make sure that, that I don't do anything that would give them COVID. You should be thinking about how to cure the COVID they have, not be scared you're the one that would be giving it. What's wrong with us? dangerous it's dangerous for you to go to seattle it's dangerous for you to check into this hotel we were told you being here could kill my grandma baby your grandma's dying and going to hell anyway us being here could save her is that strange to y'all i mean is that a foreign thought Because I can assure you, you've all got an appointment with a box. Every one of you. None of you are going to live forever, but that question from John Newman remains, will your life ever actually have a beginning? The answer is and always has been that men like Elijah who were discipled must stand up and do the works of God. More than that, we must do them without being seduced by personal gain. Even more than that, we must do it while men insult us as dangerous. We are dangerous. Disciple men are always dangerous to the enemy. I want to show you one last picture. Christ's call is to capture men from the devil's clutches and snatch them from the very jaws of hell. To enlist and train them for Jesus and make them a mighty army of God. Before I finish this, I shared with no one these notes. No one. I didn't even keep them in my one note where I normally would because I know how you people are. (laughs) Do you recall the tongue and the interpretation that came forward in worship? Two different men about raising up an army. You can't make that up. That is the witness of the Spirit. But this can only be accomplished by red-hot, 
unconventional, unfettered, Holy Spirit religion by reckless sacrifice and heroism in the foremost trenches. That's how men of God used to speak. Peyton, if you don't mind bringing your team here. Listen, I believe that this essentially comes down to two very important things. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, you go, no, no, I have been filled with the Holy Ghost. I might ask you an honest question. Have you? What would make you say that? Well, the thing is, is I prophesy. Well, good for you. Well, the thing is, is I speak in tongues. Well, good for you. I'm glad for that. Do you have a Holy Spirit of manly vigor that overcomes cowardness in every situation? How full of the Holy Ghost are you? What if with one-eighth of a tank you can speak in tongues? What if, what if, if you get it up to a quarter, you can prophesy? How full of the Holy Ghost are you? I believe that we need an infilling for the days to come that allows us to stand in the face of opposition in a way that you've not seen in your lifetime. What's the other thing that we need? You need an actual witness. You don't need Christian witness training. You don't need some track to help you. You need a life that actually demonstrates the worth and the effect of the faith that you say that you have. Do you know how that witness occurs? You have to be put in situations that others wouldn't and you will. You have to step up when others back up. And if you won't do it, then the faith is not as important to you as you say it is. Which takes you back to the first place in the flow chart. Get full of the Holy Ghost and He'll get that cowardness out of you. Now, if your mind has been racing while I've been talking, you've been saying, oh, it's not that. It's not cowardice. I hate when you use the word cowardice. Why does He always say the word cowardice? Because you're a coward. That's why. Deal with it. Circumcise it away from you. The truth is, is the sinful man always shrinks away from light that exposes something. Always. I've been a coward many times in my life, but the filling of the Holy Ghost. Look, you may only have one or two chances in your life to be a hero. I mean, Pastor Matthew gets one every day, but the rest of us have to wait. Every day, you can get full of the Holy Ghost and not be a coward. Every day. I wouldn't have preached on this if I didn't know that we needed it. I wouldn't have preached on this if I didn't know that you wanted it. I believe that we need. Yes, if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Ghost and speak in other tongues, we'll pray for you. That's that's the easy part. You never prophesied. We'll pray for you. That's that's easy. Itty bitty baby steps. I'm not lying to you. If you're here and you don't do those things, you haven't taken itty bitty baby steps. Just being blunt with you. But assuming that you do those things, that's still a long, long ways from a spirit of manly vigor that overcomes the cowardness of our times. You know why tongues is important in the, bapt- in, 
and uh, initial evidences are important, they're your first baby steps to overcoming your cowardice. It's not really a theological argument. Let's just be real. It's not a theological argument. You're just a coward. I was a coward too. I understand. Until he filled me with a spirit of manly vigor. If you need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, cut that cowardly thing away from you. We're going to give you that opportunity. If you're here and you braved sickness and everything else to be here and you need to be healed, I'm not scared. Not even a little bit. I'd be happy to pray for any sick person. If, if, if you have it and you want to hug, you want to, look, I mean, get it all in my beard. The Christian simply cannot be scared. He must be the cure. Period. Or die trying. And both are possible. But if your faith is worth something, then you've accepted that the moment you came into Christ. I want to do this in a certain way. Can we have at least one pastor from each of the churches? These guys, uh, in almost every case, are better men than I've ever been anyway. I want to do it like this. If you need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, whether that means that you're taking the baby, 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 itty-bitty baby, step of speaking in other tongues or the only slightly bigger step of learning to prophesy we want to pray for you on this side of the room but if the way that you need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost is that you need manly vigor that overcomes cowardice not just related to coronavirus but related to witness to your relatives, related to how you handle yourself in public, related to how you act at work, if you need the power of God to be a real witness in you, we want to pray for you on this side of the room. If you're listening and you're realizing, you know, the way those people describe Christianity, I don't think that I've ever really experienced that. Then you come right here dead center. If you are sick, like you got active symptoms, you don't know what you're going to do, I'm going to meet with you in that back corner. And I want to pray for you. Okay? It doesn't matter what you, you don't even got to tell me. (laughs) But I want to pray for you, and I'm telling you something. You're going to get healed. Okay? We don't want at this service altar calls for anything else. Okay? You're going to have many other opportunities. We want baptism in the Holy Ghost with initial evidence. We want a baptism filled with manly vigor over here. Y'all got those two things? And we want healing in that back corner by the exit sign. Do you know what that means for those of you that want to exit? 
You have to have some manly vigor because you have to walk right through the healing line. Would y'all stand to your feet for a minute? I don't know. I'm a grandpa now. I'm getting old. I've been doing this a long time and it's the great love of my life, but I really just don't care much for formality anymore. And it no longer does something for me to see how many people are here or how many respond. What does do something for me is when the response is sincere. I'm asking you to to deal with your own heart right here. The reason that I'm asking is because I feel like I... I know how to get the whole room to move if that's what we want to do. I'm not interested in that. If you need to take the baby step of speaking in other tongues, and I know you might think that's insulting, good, get over it. That's a part of this process. If you need to take the baby step of learning to prophesy, move in the spiritual gifts, I really want you, the moment we pray, to come over here. And you know what will happen? Is God will meet you in that and you'll get that. Now, if you don't have baby level courage then you probably need to come to the middle over here and ask if you're saved if you are saved and have the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Ghost and you're doing those things but you are not witnessing as a martus somebody filled with the spirit of, of manly vigor loving not their lives unto death we're asking you to come right here to these men Okay. Now here's what's going to happen is I'm going to begin to pray. And as soon as I do, the worship team's going to begin to play. And then some of you are going to go to see who else is doing something. Can I tell you that's not manly vigor? That's not even girly vigor. You either are or are not moved of God. And you either will or will not move for God. It's not for us. It's not for the people around you. It is for your God and for your equipping. Mighty God, we ask now in the name of Jesus that you would move in this room and move these people into your will and into your ways.